0: Years ago, a pastor friend of mine went to some discipleship classes at a church of a different denomination. These classes cost about twelve hundred dollars a person uh, for each person who enrolled. I was I was floored by that. I'd never heard of a church charging people anything more than maybe the cost for a book for discipleship classes. And these classes did come with a book. They Covered multiple semesters in a year and you were able to get audio recordings of the classes. Still, I thought about $1,200 seemed excessive for the classes. A few months after I learned all this, I talked to someone who was not a part of that church, but a part of the denomination that these classes come from and asked if this cost was normal. He told me the cost was normal and it was intentional. These discipleship classes were really involved. There were teaching, there were books uh, to read, there were practical exercises to be done between classes. And the classes typically met two to three times a week for a couple of hours each night. In fact, I googled today the name of the class and found a church in California from this denomination that puts it on. And they meet uh, twice a week and then they had two monthly meetings. Right, so once a month on a Friday night they met, then the next morning on a Saturday morning, they met, and they were the meetings were all two to three hours each. So for ten times a month they met two to three hours uh, a time. And the fellow I talked to said all of this was really involved for the church to host the lessons and to teach them, and they didn't have time for people who weren't seriously devoted to being discipled in this direction. So the price was intentionally high to weed out people. Who weren't going to be devoted and take the classes seriously. It was, they were intentionally high so the people who, who paid that would see the classes as valuable. And then since they saw it as valuable, they'd be more likely to do the reading, do the work, be faithful to the class and get what was required they wanted them to get out of it. They hoped that they saw it as valuable, then they would live as though it were valuable. I thought about this story in my studies of Isaiah 6 this week. We all know people who come to Jesus and their lives are never the same. The way they live is forever altered. They read God's Word, they pray, they're faithful to church, they're generous, they seek to be holy to the just to the very best of their abilities. They live for Jesus every moment of their lives. At the same time, we know people who come to Jesus and their lives really don't change all that much. Their lives aren't marked by devotion to Jesus in any real way. There's not any sense of holiness about them. There's really no change in their lives at all, hardly, despite their profession of faith. And I wondered why that is. I've wondered for years why that is. And I was reading and studying this week. I think there are probably three reasons for this. I think, one, some people really just aren't saved. And I know we don't like to talk like that and think about that. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount and a few other places in the Gospels, He makes it clear That false conversions are a thing. That some people will live their lives thinking they're saved and on the day of judgment they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's one possible reason. Another possible reason is some people don't know. Some people come to Jesus and they really don't know how they're supposed to live for Jesus. And what they don't know comes out in their lives. Uh, when I recommitted my life to Jesus, or really seriously committed my life to Jesus, I was on leave in the army. So I committed my life to Christ. I was baptized at the Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church. Then I went back to the army and, and tried to do my best to live for the Lord while I was there. When I came home, I was glad to be home. I was glad to be going to, to my church and to make friends and to be with folks from my church. And, and one night after a, an evening service, all, our folks from church, several of us went out to eat pizza. And while we were out eating and waiting on the food, I, I told a story that I thought was hilarious. Something that had happened when I was in the army. And after I told the story, my mom put her hands in her face and put her face on the table and shook her head. My dad began to, to profusely apologize for me. And everybody at the table were really kind of wide-eyed and blank in color. Turns out my hilarious story was wildly inappropriate. But what did I know? I had just come from a place where wildly inappropriate was a synonym for hilarious. right? I I was a Christian and I wasn't trying to be offensive. I I literally just did not know any better. And I think it's many it's many times that way with people. They just don't know how they're supposed to live for Jesus. Thirdly, and the one we're going to focus on for tonight and, and next week, some people just don't see Jesus in the way they ought to see him. One of the greatest needs in the church today is an accurate view of Jesus. Culture today, and even much of the Christian culture, has a view of Jesus based more on feelings and fantasy than upon God's Word. Many today have constructed a view of Jesus that that pleases them and is accepting, uh, and is acceptable in their sight rather than accepting the revelation of Jesus we've been given in God's Word. You see this often. Anytime someone says, I just can't imagine Jesus caring about, you know they have constructed a Jesus to their own liking. Anytime someone says, well, I don't know what the Bible says, but here's what I think is right, you can be sure they've constructed a Jesus of their own liking. Because those kind of statements always, always end up contradicting what has been revealed about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Those sort of statements always make Jesus less than he is. Those sort of statements, they make Jesus far too human when he is not. It is doubtful there is any error of the Christian faith that does not originate in a wrong view of Jesus. Now tonight as we continue our study of Isaiah... We're going to see Jesus in a way we may not often think of as Jesus, but is in fact Jesus. And seeing Jesus this way will determine how we live for Jesus. So open your Bible to Isaiah 6, page 521 in the Pew Bible. And if you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read all 13 verses, but we're mostly going to focus on 1-4 through tonight. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two, each covered his face, and with two, each covered his feet, and with two, each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me. I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth with it and he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and atonement is made for your sins. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening. But do not understand keep on looking but do not gain knowledge make the hearts of this people insensitive their ears dull and their eyes blind so they will not see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And then I said Lord how long and he answered until cities are devastated and without inhabitant houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has completely removed people and there are many forsaken places in the midst of the land. Yet there will still be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like the terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. The holy seed is its stump. Title of the message tonight, Seeing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We praise You. We exalt You tonight. We come, Father, with a desire to see Jesus as he is. Lord, not in an idea of our making, but Lord, in humble submission to the one who is king over kings and Lord over lords. The one who has risen from the dead, has called us and has saved us, has given us his spirit, commissioned us to go and do his will in the world. Father, we want to know Jesus so we can live for him properly. Lord, we don't well, we don't want to be those who think they're safe, but they're not. What a terrifying thought. But we also don't want to be those who who live in, in ignorance, Father. We just don't know Jesus. We don't know what he's like. We don't know how we're supposed to live neither do we want to have a low view of Jesus. Let it not be said of us, our view of Jesus is far too human. Take your word and let your spirit use it tonight to elevate our view of him. Till we see him as high and exalted. Till we see him as holy and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And where we already see him as this way, cement this in our hearts and strengthen it in our lives. Put us in a deep awe and a great amazement at the greatness and the goodness and the power of Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, familiar passage starts off by telling us it takes place in the year King Uzziah died. Now, this If we aren't familiar with Old Testament history, that may not seem like it's important. It may seem kind of like literary filler, but it's a very important detail telling us quite a bit about the historical context of this time. King Uzziah had been sick with leprosy for many years, and he was finally succumbed to it around 740 B.C. Uzziah had reigned for about 52 years in Jerusalem. He was a good king for the most part. And during his reign, Israel had thrived economically and, military, with, and through their military. Between the massive and successful works the king had launched, the business success of the people, there was little unemployment. The nation was extremely prosperous. But all this prosperity and all this success, it went to Uzziah's head and he became proud. And he made a terrible and a costly mistake. He took it upon himself to go into the temple and burn incense to the Lord. Now this was the job of the priests and the priests alone. This wasn't a like he made a mistake in his zeal. He wanted to go do it and it was the wrong thing to do. It wasn't like that. Uzziah went in to do it. The priests actually stopped him and said, this isn't your job, king, but it's it's God's. Uzziah essentially threatened their lives and determined he would go ahead and do it anyway. And so in his pride and in his self-support, and his self-importance, Uzziah rebelled against the Lord and rejected the counsel of the priests And went to burn the incense. God took this offense very seriously and struck Uzziah with leprosy. Causing him to live in isolation until the day of his death. The death of King Uzziah was a pivotal moment in the nation's history. The peace and the prosperity they had known would soon begin to decline. Despite the fact his son Jotham was a good and a godly king. Most of the people had already begun a descent into depravity in their turn against God. This turn toward corruption would only get worse when Jotham's son Ahaz became king. Ahaz rejected the godly example of his dad and his granddad, uh, and he began to push further and further into iniquity. There was a turn during the time of the king Hezekiah, um, but it wasn't enough to turn the tide. And then, when Hezekiah passed, his son Manasseh came upon the scene, and he was essentially the, the most wicked king Israel or Judah ever had. And the level of iniquity and depravity he brought to the nation stayed until the destruction of Jerusalem. Isaiah's call to be a prophet came in the time when the disintegration of the nation was just beginning. Isaiah was called to go to a people who had already given themselves over to greed, indulgence, drunkenness, idolatry, sexual immorality, mocking what was righteous, persecuting those who through faith in God lived righteously. Isaiah was being sent to a people who had perverted their values to the point that, as we saw last week, they called evil good and good evil. Now, In this kind of culture, just being faithful to God would have been difficult, much less actively living for God and trying to call the people to repent and to turn back to God. Of course, Isaiah didn't know all of this was coming, but God did. God knew there would be times during Isaiah's ministry where he would want to throw in the towel. And when you read the whole book, you find there were those times. It was overwhelming how difficult it was, how many people turned against him, how few people responded to his message. So what God did was he knew this day was coming and he knew it was going to be difficult for Isaiah. And so what he did was he gave Isaiah this vision where Isaiah was allowed to to see God in in as much of, of his glory as a human could handle And having seen God's greatness and God's glory, Isaiah would live a vastly different life than the world around him. He had seen God and he knew what God was like and he would live for God regardless of the consequences. As I thought about this during the week, I was struck with how familiar this all seemed. Living in a nation where people were once devoted to God were at best indifferent, but were at most indulgent and idolatrous. Living in a land with people who called themselves the people of God, and yet many of them shared the morality and the immorality of the pagans around them. Living in a nation where once there had been many who were devoted to God, and yet now they mocked righteousness, and they reviled those who sought to live righteously. A nation that that at one point had had many people who were the people of God and who lived for the Lord. But they had now had a perverted value system that called what God called evil good and called what God called good evil. Just to be faithful to Jesus in a culture like that would be difficult. Much less to be fully devoted to Him, to actively live for Him in a way the world can see, to try to help them come to know Jesus as their Savior. What we need now in our culture is what Isaiah needed then in his culture. We need to see Jesus in all of His glory. We need to see the greatness and the glory of Jesus. The reason I say Jesus when I'm talking about this passage is because of something we're told in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. John references this passage. He talks specifically about verse 10. And then John says something that's kind of amazing. He says that Isaiah saw what isaiah saw was jesus and all of his glory john says what isaiah wrote about here was in fact jesus so the glorious lord we're seeing in this passage is in fact jesus this is a a vision of jesus this is a a picture of who jesus is and what jesus is like of course We're familiar with the idea Jesus did not come into being one night in Bethlehem, right? Jesus had always existed. He was eternal with the Father from the very beginning. So the the pre-incarnate Jesus in all of His glory is sitting on His throne. And Isaiah is given this vision. He writes it down and we are able to see this and know who Jesus is and know what He is like. So that we can live for him in the way we ought to. But our ability to really live for Jesus in the way we should. Is in many ways going to be dependent on how we see him. If we see Jesus as sort of what the culture says. The sort of hippie Jesus that just wants everybody to be happy and love others. We're not going to live for him in the way we ought to live for him. But if we see Jesus as he is here. Well, that will forever change the way we live our lives. So our key truth tonight is how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. How we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. And normally we would look at the whole chapter and all of the aspects that are going on in this. If you've been here for a while, you know we've, I've preached this passage I don't know, five or six times in the time I've been here. We're not going to do that tonight. We're mostly going to focus on verses 1 through 4 and the picture we're given of Jesus. Not so much the response of Isaiah to this vision of Jesus. We're just going to look at the, the picture so we can understand what Jesus is like. We can see Him because how we see Jesus determines how we'll live I want to take extra time tonight to focus on how we should see Jesus. So as we look at this passage, there are uh, a few things. One, Jesus is great. So in the year King Uzziah died, the Lord is sitting on a throne. He is lofty and he is exalted. The the picture of, of Jesus on his throne here is significant. The idea of being lofty and exalted seems to picture the king being exalted above all the rulers and the governments throughout the universe. I, I think, I think in this in their day, and even in Revelation, talks about King of Kings. In their day, there were when a nation would conquer, a lot of times they would still put a king on the throne, or they would leave the king that they conquered on the throne, but he would be the king under the king who had conquered them. And if there was ever like a council where all of the kings that were under the nation, under the rule of this one conquering king, the empire, gathered together, they would sit on thrones as well. But the emperor's throne would be high above them. So that nobody would mistake him as being their equal. He was better than them. He was lofty and exalted above them. This is the picture we're having of Jesus here. He is lofty. And exalted above all creation. He is lofty and exalted above any human king or any human ruler. He is the king over kings, the lord over lords, the sovereign ruler over all creation. His greatness and glory transcend anything the world has ever known or ever will know. The robe of his, the the train of his robe fills the temple. One thing that's hard about this is I have preached this so much in the King James that it naturally comes out that way and these are not the same. And so I stutter over my words sometimes. So the the train of his robe fills the temple. Now the temple was separated into three areas. There were the outer court where anyone could go, the holy place where only the priests could go, and then the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God with the people. And the, only the high priest could go into the most holy place where the Ark was and, and only once a year and he had to make a sacrifice as he went in there. The vision of, of Jesus we're seeing here, it takes Isaiah past the veil to the most holy place and in the very presence of God. He, he was... For the very first time, seeing God in all of the glory, mortal eyes could handle. And again, the idea of his train, of his robe filling the temple, was a picture of his glory, his greatness, his magnificence. Um, again, kings wore flowing kind of robes that went on them in the, to show how magnificent and marvelous and wonderful they were. And this is a picture of just Isaiah seeing this would have been awed by the greatness of the one he's seeing. The greatness of Jesus is further shown in the fact these seraphim are flying around the throne praising him. Now the word seraphim basically means burning ones. And it seems to signify their dazzling brightness. They have six wings, but they only use two to fly. Two they cover their eyes, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. They covered their face because even though they were sinless angels... They knew they were unworthy to look upon the one who was on the throne. They covered their feet because apparently that was a common way you didn't go before royalty with your feet exposed. I don't know. That's just the way it was then. So all of this is done. This picture of them flying with two, covering their eyes, covering their feet, was to remind and to show Isaiah the greatness of the one sitting on the throne. Everything about this picture is meant to remind us the greatness of Jesus. It's meant to cause us to elevate our view of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Is this how we see Jesus? If we're to have an accurate view of Jesus, this is how we must see Him. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is awe-inspiring. Jesus is supremely great. God allowed Isaiah to see this and record for us the King of kings sitting on His throne, being worshipped by magnificent, angelic beings. This is the Savior who has redeemed us. This is the one by whose name we're called as Christians. We must Elevate our view of Jesus to the one we find in His Word. Now, of course, there are many reasons why this is important. One is, Jesus is real, right? If Jesus were a figment of our imagination, then it would be okay for each one of us to make Jesus however we wanted Him to be, whatever made us the most comfortable. He's not a real person, but He is real. And as a real person, he has real character traits. And he has real, he's really like something. Just as you and I, we are real people, therefore we're really like something. And so someone can't say, well, I I like you, but when I talk about what you're like, I'm going to say something totally contrary to you. Right? I can't say, my friend Scott, he's he's like, he's about five foot tall. He... He loves the cold, and he is a massive Texas Longhorns fan. And he voted for Biden every time he's ever ran, right? That's, now I could say that, but it's not true, is it? That's not really Scott Watson. I'm making up; it's a figment of my imagination. Now, if I made up a friend named Scott, I could do that. But if Scott Watson is a real person, then I don't get to, I don't get to, alter my description of who He is or what He's like. I have to see Him as He is and either accept that or reject that, but I don't get to change that. the same with Jesus. He's real. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's a real person. The real God and King and Lord over all. And therefore, we don't get to alter what He's like. He has revealed Himself as something. And what we get to do is either accept that revelation... Or reject it. But at no point do we get to alter it. Another reason this is important. Is altering Jesus in some way. Having a, a wrong view of him is mental idolatry. right? It, it is saying to Jesus you're not good enough. The way you are. I'll fix you. We're reimagining him. To a way that we think would make him better. The reality is our wrong thoughts about Jesus are always demeaning to Jesus. For our wrong thoughts about Jesus always make him less than he is. Now mental idolatry was something that we see in, in God's word. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain. And Aaron made the golden calf and called the people to worship. Now, the best part about that story is that Aaron didn't say, behold the cow God. No, he said, behold your God, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He fashioned this animal and he said, this is Yahweh. This is what God is like. And it was idolatry because God was not like that at all. And that image that he made of what God was like made God far less than he actually was. And in the same way, Anytime we say, well, this part about Jesus is uncomfortable and I want to take that off so people like it better. We don't fix Jesus. We demean Jesus. We make him less than he actually is. We must see Jesus as he is. He is lofty. He is exalted. And he is great in glory. And how we see Jesus... Will determine how we live for Jesus. It just will. Second. Jesus is holy. There's the seraphim cry out. They fly around the throne and they worship. Jesus. And they worship by crying out holy. Holy, holy is the Lord. Of armies. The repetition of the word holy. Is a, a commonly used Commonly used by the Jewish people to show a deepening of intensity. If you remember in 2 Samuel 18, Absalom is killed. David finds out and he repeatedly says, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. And the reason it's recorded him saying this over and over again is to show the depths of David's sorrow over the death of his son. So anytime, especially in the Old Testament, when you see a a repetition like that, it is meant to show a deepening of intensity or an intensification. So for the angels to be crying out for one of the attributes of Jesus over and over and over again, they are showing the, the depths of this particular attribute that is in Jesus. What attribute of Jesus are they glorifying? Are they worshiping? Are they intensifying? It's His holiness. We're meant to understand from this, Jesus is perfect in holiness. He is perfectly pure, perfectly holy. He is without any spot or any blemish. His holiness sets him apart from everything and everyone else that has ever lived or ever will live or will ever exist. Since Jesus is perfect in holiness, he is different. From us. Often we have an idea of God or of Jesus. He's like us, but more powerful. Like us, but longer living. That, that, that's, that's like Greek and Roman mindset. That's not, that's not the mindset of God's Word. Jesus is different from us. He is as different from us. He is more different from us. Than ants are from us. An ant is no more like us than we are like Jesus. He is greater and better and more magnificent and vastly different. He is something entirely unique. Jesus is the God we cannot fully comprehend. Jesus is the God we cannot fully explain. Jesus is the God whose power we cannot ever exhaust. Jesus is the God who is so great, our finite minds cannot fully fathom who He is. Jesus is so great, we cannot exaggerate His power, we cannot exaggerate His greatness, we cannot exaggerate His glory, and we cannot exaggerate His holiness. The holiness of Jesus is is possibly the single most distinguishing attribute of Jesus. But at the same time, it is also very often the least thought of and the least popular. We love the mercy of Jesus. We love the love of Jesus. We love the grace of Jesus. We love the power of Jesus. However, very often we put the holiness of Jesus way down on our list Because the holiness of Jesus can make us uncomfortable. But to see Jesus as he is, as he truly is, we must see all he is. And he is holy. We must see all he does through the lens of his holiness. We must see all he says through the lens of his holiness. Is Jesus love? Yes. But it is a holy Love. Is Jesus merciful? Yes. But it is a holy mercy. Is Jesus full of grace? Yes. But it is a holy grace. Everything Jesus is, everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does filters through holiness, purity, perfection, set apart. Absolute and perfect holiness separates Jesus from everything and everyone else. Any idea we have of who Jesus is, what Jesus does, or what Jesus is like, that doesn't make His holiness a central or the central attribute by which all others are viewed makes Him less than He is and is unworthy of Him. Again, if we... Whether or not we see Jesus as holy in this way matters. Because how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. And then the third one, the final one. Jesus is worthy. As the seraphim fly around, they, they cry out that the whole earth is full of His glory. It springs to mind Psalm 19.1 where the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. And then the picture and really all of this is the immeasurable immeasurable worthiness of Jesus. Jesus is so worthy of worship and devotion. These mighty heavenly beings who themselves are fascinatingly incredible to see, I would imagine. They not only worship him, they cover their faces there before him because they do not feel they're worthy of looking upon him. They are so devoted to Him, they never stop, day or night, shouting, Holy, 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 it's the Lord of armies, the whole earth is full of His glory. That psalm, that hymn is going on right now. And it will go on all the time. When we get to heaven, it will still be going on and it will always be going on. As, we, as these heavenly beings shout this worship, Verse 4, the the foundations of the threshold tremble as they cry out. And the whole temple was filled with smoke. The power of their voices, the fervency of their praise shake the temple itself. Their worship wasn't some sort of puny, mumbling worship of Jesus. They weren't half-hearted or halfway involved or distracted. They were all in. They worshipped with such fervency and passion, it shook the temple. They knew and they understood the kind of worship Jesus was worthy of receiving. They knew and they understood the kind of worship Jesus deserved. Jesus is is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our devotion. And whether or not we see Him as that way will determine how we live for Jesus. So as we look at this, we think about this, Jesus is great, Jesus is holy, Jesus is worthy. Is this how we normally see Jesus? It must be how we see Jesus because this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is like. And to to alter any aspect of this is to demean Jesus and make him less than he is. And as I've said, the the key truth multiple times throughout the message, how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. Isaiah's response to this, it, it illustrates this. We aren't going to dig into it tonight, but I just want to quickly point it out. Isaiah sees the great, holy, and worthy Jesus and immediately changes his view of sin. Woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king of armies. Whatever his view of sin, his sin was before, he now realized, woe is me, I'm ruined. King James, woe is me, I'm undone. He's essentially saying, oh my goodness, I'm about to die. I am in the presence of the holy God and I'm going to face a holy judgment because I'm a sinner. And and I, I even like the way he describes it. I'm a man of unclean lips. He didn't say I'm a serial killer. He didn't say I'm an adulterer. What he said was, Jesus is so holy, I realize how if my lips are horribly sinful, the things I've said. Think about that. Do we often think about how sinful our words can be? And seeing the holy Jesus, Isaiah knew that. It altered his view of the nation. The people were a people of unclean lips. The culture wasn't okay as he might have thought before. People weren't just straying a little bit. It was terrible out there. They were as undone. They were as ruined as he was. Isaiah saw the dreadful sinfulness of sin. The light of the holiness of Jesus. Seeing Jesus changed Isaiah's view of, of cleansing. One of the seraphim flew with a burning coal, she took from the altar. He touched his mouth, said, "Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin." Now Isaiah, Isaiah was raised in the Jewish culture where atonement was made through the sacrifices you made. You. You took your animal, you put it up there, they cut it and they did all of those things. And and you made atonement by doing this. Seeing the, the holy Jesus, Isaiah says, no way what I do can make atonement for my sins. It has to come from God himself. He couldn't cleanse himself. He couldn't take away his sin. Seeing the holy Jesus, Isaiah saw a desperate need for salvation from Jesus. And then seeing Jesus changed his view of serving Jesus. The Lord said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, pick me. What's the mission? Has no clue. What are you going to do? Where am I going to go? No idea. But you're worthy. I have seen the worthy Jesus and he, whatever he wants me, if, if Jesus will pick me, I'll do whatever it is. I mean, that, that's what we're seeing here. He has seen Jesus. He has been saved by Jesus. And now Jesus cries out, who's going to go do something for me? And Isaiah's like, me, right here. What is it? Don't know, don't care. If the worthy Jesus, this lofty and exalted one, if he will pick me for his team and let me do his will, I'll do it. For however long it is, it needs to be done. Whatever it is that needs to be done. Isaiah saw Jesus was worthy of giving his life to going and doing Jesus's will. How we see Jesus will determine how we live for Jesus. It will determine our view of sin, both ours and others. It will determine our view of salvation, whether it's of us or of God. And it will determine whether or not we live for Jesus and how thoroughly we live for Jesus in our lives. How we see Jesus will determine how we live for Jesus. And this passage starts with Isaiah seeing Jesus as he is and everything flows naturally from that. This is where it has to start with us. We have to embrace this revelation of Jesus And once we do this, once we understand Jesus is truly great, Jesus is unbelievably holy, Jesus is immeasurably worthy, everything else will flow in our lives. Now, I don't think, though, this is something we can just muster up on our own. Nothing in the Christian life is stuff we can just muster up on our own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if this is the view of Jesus we're supposed to have, and maybe we don't have it completely, how do we get it? Because I can't just say, Jesus is great, and it fills my mind and comes out in my life. We need what happened to Isaiah. The Holy Spirit gave him a picture of this. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates Scripture to us. He is the one who teaches us and makes it living and active in our lives. I'm not saying we need a literal vision. What I'm saying is we need the Holy Spirit to take this picture of Jesus and burn it into our minds, burn it into our hearts. So that we're never the same afterward. Because if we if we see Jesus in this way, we, we can't help but be different. And, and I'll, I'll close with this. It's not just this isn't one passage and we say well one passage you can't say that's how it is. What turned Moses from a shepherd into the one who went and stood before Pharaoh? He saw the burning bush and Jesus speaking to him out of the burning bush. What turned the apostle Paul from Saul the persecutor to Paul the preacher? It was seeing Jesus as he was. What caused Peter fall down and say, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And then to leave his fishing business and follow, it was seeing Jesus. This is all throughout. We desperately need to see Jesus because the culture is going to get far more difficult to live for Jesus. It is going to get far more difficult to be faithful And to say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. And if Jesus, if I do not understand the greatness of Jesus, if I don't understand the holiness of Jesus, if I don't understand the worthiness of Jesus, I'll give up. I'll let up. I'll back up. We must see Jesus this way. The Holy Spirit. Part of His ministry is to lead us to truth, to show us these things. We need to seek for the Holy Spirit to illuminate this, to burn it into our hearts, to burn it into our lives. If this is our desire, then we need to begin to pray this way. To Start tonight and do it until the Spirit burns it into our lives and we understand who Jesus is and, and what He's like. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You tonight. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Help us, O God, to see Jesus as He is. Let Your Spirit come and take this passage. Start here. And let this burn into our minds the holiness, the greatness and the worthiness of Jesus. Lord, let us be brought to a place of deep awe and great commitment to Christ. Not not for any other reason, but just because He he deserves it. He deserves our love. He deserves our awe. He deserves our devotion. And let this change us. So we'll live the way the Apostle Paul said. We'd be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We'd not be conformed to this world because our minds have been renewed by the greatness and the power and the worthiness of Jesus. And so we will... Live as much like Him as humanly possible. Help us, O God. Strengthen us. Make us burning and bright lights that shine for Jesus in a dark and a dying world. We ask in His name. Amen.